This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now, you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. going on everyone how y'all doing welcome to the sound of water podcast i'm your host david yoon i just wanted to share a little message before i play the interview that i had with peter lovelink um i think as i reflect the older i get i begin to realize more and more that as a christian regardless of what my political views are or what i believe to be my unique spiritual gifts what my calling is in life is to love others unconditionally Bethany Kids is an amazing Christian charity that focuses on providing pediatric care across Africa, and I believe that they truly live out the values of loving others the way that Christ loved us. I had the pleasure of interviewing Peter Lublink, the executive director of Bethany Kids, who was able to share Bethany Kids' mission and missions and values, his experience living and teaching in the Middle East, and what he thinks it means to have a true heart for missions. Bethany Kids relies heavily on donations to keep its operations up and running. So if you'd like to donate, if you feel inspired or moved by this interview in any way, please click on the link in the description and give any amount that you see fit. Thank you all so much again for tuning in. I hope you are as inspired and empowered as by this interview as I was. Yo, what is going on, everyone? How y'all doing? Welcome to the Sound of Water podcast. Today, we have uh, Peter Lovelink of Bethany Kids, which is a registered charity in the UK, Canada, and the USA, and provides pediatric care across seven different African countries. Peter is the executive director of Bethany Kids, and he has pastor churches in Canada and the Middle East, and has a master's degree in theology, as well as one in community development and social justice. Uh, outside of work, Peter enjoys traveling and has thus far been to about 85 different countries. So welcome, Peter. Thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. Uh, I wanted to start off. Have you really been to 85 countries? I have. Yeah, it might be 86 or something. I'd have to count again. It's been a while since I've gone anywhere with the pandemic, but um, yeah. yeah, I've done a fair share of traveling. Goodness. Where are you located now? So I'm living in uh, Canada, so eastern part of Canada. Uh, okay. in the city of Kingston. Okay. And previously you were living in the Middle East, correct? That's right. So I've been living in the country of Kuwait. So just on the Arabian Gulf, the last uh, last eight or so years, just before okay. the pandemic. Wow. So Kuwait for eight years. Um, and where are you originally from? So I was actually born in Northern Canada, in the uh, Northern Territory or Northwest Territories of Canada, a city right. called Yellowknife. So it's very high up there for American listeners, sort of comparable to Alaska in, in terms of positioning on the globe. Yeah. And um, yeah, very short amount of time there. I grew up in Europe and then all over Canada 
couple of different places. So when we talk about Bethany Kids, um, it's a charity that's focused on pediatric surgery across Africa. Um, where else do you guys operate? So is the surgeries, are the surgeries mostly focused just, just in Africa? Yeah, good question. So it started in a country of Kenya, if I kind of turn the clock back like 20 years. Okay. Uh, and initially you had sort of an American and eventually a Canadian surgeon who were who had moved to Kenya, were providing surgery there. And then over time, what happened was there was this realization that rather than just having two Westerners provide care on the continent of Africa, we need to train local surgeons. So we started training pediatric surgeons initially from wherever they were applying. So we've had surgeons from all sorts of different countries uh, applying. Thus far, it's entirely been the continent of Africa. But what's happened over time is as those surgeons return to their home countries, uh, new sort of Bethany Kids projects start to pop up. So those seven countries are all led by uh, former trainees of the program. So that's kind of how it's naturally and organically been growing. So who knows at some point uh, if we if we end up on a different continent, which would be pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think you guys have been around since 2004. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. so the I would say that sort of the prehistory is the those surgeons I mentioned, uh, the one had been in Kenya since the, the 80s. So mm. different iterations of the name, uh, kind of still using the word Bethany existed even in the late 90s, uh, yeah. but then kind of took its current form. Yeah, just just under 20 years ago. I wanted to dive into what exactly does Bethany Kids do? Because I was looking to the website. Um, it looks like you guys do a lot. Obviously, the focus is um, is the pediatric surgery but you guys also provide like rehab services, spiritual care. Um, so really, if, can you go into what exactly you guys do? What is the purpose? And, you know, how is, how is all of that going right now in, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So how, how is that? How is that going right now? Sure. So to begin with, in terms of sort of vision and identity, we're very much, I'll phrase it as a Jesus centered organization. So we really, mm -hmm. the, our employees, volunteers at every level, really care about living out the gospel and, and living out that healing and transformation for folks. So in very short terms, we really care about transforming the lives of children, uh, kids who otherwise would have very little options in life. Because when you have a medical condition, not, not only does that impact you, but your entire family. You know, people losing jobs because they're caring for kids, just just um, sort of a domino effect of all sorts of issues that come up. So our goal is to see those lives made whole as best we can. So if I look at it kind of in, in phases that the first thing we do is we train surgeons, which mm -hmm. we mentioned just a moment ago as those surgeons. So that's part of our budget is to train new accredited pediatric surgeons. And then as those surgeons get into their home countries, uh, the first thing that we typically start to support would be one, uh, surgeons are paid very poorly across the continent of Africa. Sure. I was having a conversation with someone just last week and the, the wage that this surgeon was being offered was about $600 US per month to be a pediatric mm -hmm. surgeon. For context, pediatric surgeons in North America, um, some of them are making sort of a quarter million dollars a year. So there's a, a great mm -hmm. disparity in, yeah. in wage. And these are highly trained people who spent 15 years in school. So the first thing we do is we want to make sure that surgeon has the support they need financially to serve in, in areas that are of highest need. So mm -hmm. we will provide like a top up to them financially to say, if you're willing to, to work in this mission hospital or in this 
area of really critical care, then we will help back you financially in whatever way that we can. So that's kind yeah. of, we've trained them, we support them specifically. Then the next wave, if you could call it that, would be that any child who comes to that person's hospital and cannot afford even the $100, $200 for the surgery will pay that cost. And that's actually the biggest amount of, we'll say, budget that we have in a given year. Probably something like 60% of everything we spend is on children's hospital bills. They show up, they need the surgery. We know they need the surgery, but they just can't afford it. And we don't want to turn them away. So we get them that care. So we've trained the surgeon, paid the surgeon, uh, paid for the child if they can't afford care. And then as you kind of come around the, the, to, to go full circle, um, what we see is that uh, a lot of these children, they as they leave surgery, they need rehab to really ensure that that surgery goes well. Mm. So for example, you have uh, children who um, they, they've had a corrective surgery, maybe at the age of six months old or a year yeah. old, whatever the case might be. And uh, from there, we know that if we give them six months of rehab or two years of rehab, that the chances of them being able to, to live fully and freely go up substantially. Right. 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 So we started providing post-surgical rehab. And of course, that naturally flows into some children need wheelchairs. So we're going to be providing wheelchairs for children long term. Uh, so that's kind of how it's all in, in a circle in my mind where you train the surgeon, provide it for the surgeon, provide it for the kids. And then that range of care starts to grow out of there. And, and I would say it really does include even beyond that public education mm. is sort of cropped up in that fourth wave because as surgeons are really practicing, what we've seen would be that um, uh, sometimes, well, for example, take, take the case of sort of uh, neuro, neurological uh, issues at birth. A kid is born with a birth defect in, in basic mm -hmm. terms. Some of those defects could have been reduced if the mother had better nutrition during, um, during uh, pregnancy. Absolutely. So yeah. then Bethany Kids also tries to provide some kind of public education to raise awareness about maternal health. So mm -hmm. that we're not only treating the immediate child before us, but we're trying to kind of help uh, react to those larger social issues that that led to the the issue before us. So is it expensive to conduct surgery in Africa? Because I mean, when we talk about $100, $200 to pay for surgery, uh, I guess the only frame of reference that I have is if I had to pay that in the US, I mean, I'd do that any day, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, but um, with, you know, factoring in cost of living and just uh, currency rates, um, relatively speaking, is, is it expensive to get care in Africa? What is the healthcare system like in Africa relative to the US? Yeah, so it would depend specifically on each country. So every country mm. we work in has a slightly different setup. For sure. the most part, you we we tend to take care of children who even $200 is debilitating. If that's two months yeah. salary or if that's a month mm -hmm. salary, that means you're making choices between a child's health and uh, food on the table. Yeah. So, you know, there's for a lot of children, that is a big number. Uh, so specifically, if I to kind of give you some averages, I would say our average, if I take all of the sort of 3,000 or so surgeries we do in a year, on average is just shy of $300 um, US per, per surgery. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them being more expensive, some of them being less expensive. Um, and rehab, those kinds of things, again, like $30 a session, which again, if you wouldn't be able to go to a physiotherapist in the US or Canada uh, to get really quality therapy at that price. Yeah. Um, but 
the the so again when we talk country to country some countries do have a base, basic like national health care scheme mm-hmm. um the challenge so kenya for example that they, they have a kind of a, a health care program where there's a health insurance system but a lot of a lot of the children for one reason or another have been exempt from the system. So maybe their parents have been out of work. Uh, maybe for whatever reason, they weren't properly, properly registered when they were young. There's all these kind of different reasons. So we are often taking care of the children who've fallen through the cracks hmm. and for whom $200 is a lot of money. So yeah. like you said, from the outset, for many of us in North America, two, $300 for a surgery feels very accessible. And (laughs) for us, it is. That's the wild thing. Like, if you knew that $300 would be the difference between a living child and a dead child, you'd be like, why wouldn't I pay $300? This is is a no brainer. Um, But it is, that's, you know, when you're talking internationally, that's a lot of money for some people. Mm -hmm. And trying to tell this story, trying to rally donors who've never met this kid, this kid who needs surgery on the other side of the world, it's hard to really connect that story with our lives here in North America. Absolutely. Yeah. Because um, our family donates to organizations like um, World Vision and mm-hmm. it, they say like five, $10 a month can feed a whole family somewhere in Africa. But then you talk about hundred dollars, $200 for surgery. Now it kind of seems like it's in proportion to the cost of surgery here. And it, uh, it was interesting what you were saying earlier um, oftentimes it's between like putting food on the table and providing care for a kid. I actually kind of feel like it's kind of the same here in the U S depending on, <laughs> depending on social, your, your socioeconomic status. So that's pretty yeah. interesting. It's very true. Uh, particularly again, in the U S more so than, than Canada, Canada, of course, um, healthcare is provided centrally by the government. So this sort of government yeah. health insurance plan. Which is great. Um, and yeah. so, so yeah, absolutely. A place yeah. like Kenya is kind of halfway between, where most people are covered, but there's a lot of loopholes. Uh, some some of the other places we lit, we work, the cost of care is affordable, and maybe children have free access to healthcare, but mm-hmm. there's no surgeons. So yeah. you look at uh, Sierra Leone, for example, where we provide care. Um, the, our surgeon is the only pediatric surgeon in the entire country, and so wow. that that becomes another layer of the challenge. Not just the cost of care for the child but the accessibility of a surgeon uh, just becomes near impossible. Uh, Uganda, for example, for every 5 million children, there's one pediatric surgeon. Um, wow. So just the, the disparity of access to trained professionals is another issue. And, and in North America, we have a much better ratio of kind of person to hospital Absolutely. care provider, yeah. whether it be general surgeons, pediatric surgeons, et cetera. Yeah. So does, does Bethany kid, um, do you guys own the facilities and the hospitals that you operate in? Uh, no. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about our mm. model is we are very people centric. So mm. we train surgeons, we provide for surgeons, we, tra- we provide for children who need uh, surgery, but we don't invest in building new hospital buildings uh, of, okay. of the seven sites in which we work. The only place where we've really done kind of a major um, capital or major like building project is in Kenya. And that's the place where we're training all of these surgeons. So we didn't need to make sure that we had the right uh, facility. So we built the pediatric ward in someone else's hospital mm. in order to ensure that they had the best kind of uh, training facility possible for these kids. But by and large, we're not people to worry about 
building plans and new kind of wards. We'll take what's there and invest in the people and, and invest in the people in such a way that those people don't feel like they're going to run quickly to the U.S. or Canada for better jobs, that we're yeah. providing for them in such a way that they can sustain their families long term in difficult communities. Got it. Yeah. So as executive director of the organization, uh, what is your role and do you play do you play a role at all in, in um, I guess, recruiting and trying to get physicians and, and surgeons over to to work for Bethany Kids? Yeah. So to get to the first question, I don't have to worry too much about getting surgeons over there because mm-hmm. the vast majority of our surgeons are living in their home countries. Got Even it. the person. So of the seven countries, only one of the countries has a foreigner in their surgical staff. The rest of them are, you know, in Uganda, it's a Ugandan in Sierra Leone. It's someone from Sierra Leone. The only exception would be in our training center in Kajabe, where we have two Americans who are part of the faculty of training. Uh, but they work for a Kenyan. So one of our graduates from years ago is now the person who's heading up the program. Mm. So with or without North American surgeons, the program functions and the program functions very well. So there's not a big need to recruit uh, medical professionals internationally. Our goal instead is to hopefully depend on local medical professionals and multiplying them with training. Um, So then the the second part of your question about funding, that's the big thing. Uh, There there's, I have to say, it's, it would almost be easier for me to recruit someone who said, oh, I would love to travel. That sounds so interesting and exotic. I would love <laughs> to do that. And I'd say, listen, I don't need you to travel, but I could. I would love for you to donate to help a local surgeon. They're like, ooh, yeah, bit yeah. busy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so, so I actually find that raising money is harder than kind of trying to find a Western surgeon to go over because there's no, you know, you, I, you and I are sitting here in North America and you can maybe... You know, people auto debit from their account and it feels so far away and maybe they never see the people there that are either being trained or the, the children receiving care. So it can be difficult to raise awareness. And mm-hmm. there's a number of well-established charities, particularly within the sort of Christian nonprofit sector that most churches have tended to sort of, they're already in a, in a tight relationship with. So I do find it very difficult to introduce this very specific cause like kid mm-hmm. surgery yeah. And they're like, well, I, I just, I'm going to pay for kids food or so, with this other charity or that mm-hmm. charity. So I do find it is hard to, to really get new donors excited about it. Um, and all of our money comes from donations, right? In North America, yeah. some people who've been with us for many, many years, some churches, some individuals. Um, and it is not an easy thing to have uh, a new person sign up, even if um, I was on a podcast a couple months ago and the, the host the host themselves is like, wow, this is incredible. Yeah. And they sent us like $500 and we're a small enough charity that I was like, this is incredible, man. I'm so yeah. pumped. Right. And just again, you know, it's a, it's an issue of scale when you're smaller, like us, every little bit that comes in the door just feels like it's, it's a huge blessing. Um, we're, we're still, I, I remember seeing like this Instagram video about what happens when you support small businesses and someone came in and they did their business and when they left, the two clerks were like high-fiving and like all excited, <laughs> like, hey, this is incredible. Yeah, what a day. Right. <laughs> and I feel like that's still the same for us when, you know, we sign up a new monthly donor yeah. um, or, or when we get a new kind of first-time donation. There's still this like, wow, this is incredible. This is yeah. really beautiful. And, and we, we haven't taken that for granted. It's still very, very exciting. Absolutely. So are you normally traveling um, and making pitches to, to churches and people about the organization? 
And um, how has that been during COVID with everything being so remote and travel being restricted? Yeah, that's a perfect question. So uh, first, I should admit that I started with Bethany Kids the same month that the pandemic really had an impact in North America. Mm. <laughs> so my entire experience within the organization has been pandemic infused, if I can phrase yeah. it that way. Yeah. So I have never traveled on behalf of Bethany Kids. Um, uh-huh. I, I had been to uh, our sites before or one of our sites before the pandemic started, before I even started working for Bethany Kids. But since since the pandemic, it's been working from the from home in the basement. So there's there's no going out to churches and speaking. And that has had a very big impact on the kind of work that we do, mm. because if I compare, say, a podcast to say showing up in a church in both cases, you get the chance to share your story to an audience on a podcast. You share it and people are listening. Maybe they're in the car and they think, oh, cool, cool, cool. That's great. And then they turn off the podcast, they go into the grocery store, they get their groceries and they move on with the rest of their day. Right. Right. Absolutely. Very few people yeah. who listen to a podcast think, wow, I should do something and, and I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to engage. But if I had gone to a church and spent the same amount of time at a church, you know, you get all these people in the lobby, like, Hey, wow, that was so cool. I would love to hear more. How can I connect? And you get that, uh, that lobby experience of church where people are like milling around talking that doesn't always happen in the online spaces. So I think it has had an incredibly negative impact on our ability to tell our story in a way where people become long-term supporters. Yeah. Uh, you get, you get a lot of people online who are like, Hey, cool. I'm going to cheer for you. Uh, people follow <laughs> our Instagram and like, like things. And, and there's that level of engagement but actually seeing those people go from liking a post to, you know, sending money so that a surgery can be done. That is, that is still a, a big gap, uh, particularly during a pandemic. So what is, what is next for Bethany kids then? What, what's in the plans for, for the strategic expansion of the, of the charity? So one of the things that I guess most excites me is now that you have these different surgeons who have been in their home countries for a couple of years, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the vision and the dreams in terms of the future just continue to grow. So Uganda, if I can use that as an example, because that's an area we're really focused on right now. Uh, when we first started doing surgeries, there was like 100 a year. Last year, and every year got more, last year was 900. This year, we've already surpassed 900 and it's only wow. the summer. Yeah. So you see this like exponential growth. So we have put together like a kind of a vision strategy for Uganda that really started with the vision and plan and strategy of the local surgeon. And then we're just kind of helping shape it and make sure it's, it's got the, the legs. Um, so now it's kind of trying to fund that. So it's like this great idea has come up out of Uganda. We've put it into like a little brochure and kind of set out the budget to say, here's what realistically this project is going to cost. And then now we've got a, the work is on myself and our North American staff to try to fund that, to see yeah. if we can't get people to be excited about it. Um, and then hopefully one by one, each of those countries will go through the same process where we'll establish the key kind of goals that the surgeon mm-hmm. has. We'll, we'll think about what is the speci- what are the specific issues that they're facing? Because every country is, of course, very different. Um, and in one place, wheelchairs might be the next best step. And somewhere else, it could be something quite different. So we're, we're kind of really measuring what is the best strategy for each place. Yeah. And then packaging that up in a way that a Western audience can maybe understand and hopefully try to share that with them. Uh, if 
if vaccination rates were higher, we'd probably be doing more traveling <laughs> in North America. But as I see it, it feels like the Delta variant is is on this kind of trajectory. It's swooping and in, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're, it feels like kind of we're in this for long haul and we've got to yeah. find ways to really recruit new uh, small and medium-sized donors throughout the pandemic because that idea of going back into churches and speaking in person feels like that's still a bit of a ways off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, have you always been in, in mission work? So I know that you've lived the past eight years in the Middle East. Um, you were a teacher and then leading a communication firm, uh, which was also providing strategic service or strategic marketing services to charities. Mm. Um, and then previously you were a pastor. Okay. Um, so you, you are a pastor. You have, your, um, you have a master's in theological studies. Um, so have you always been in mission work? Uh, what, what kind of led you to go into, into mission work? Yeah, I, I think that hopefully like a lot of Christians, you sort of, you look at your own skill sets and you look at the world around you and you think, uh, how can I help? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're all, sometimes we get this sense that like, oh, special people are called to make the world, this world a better place. It's like, no, all, anyone who claims to follow Jesus is called to, to be part of a kind of a transforming influence in this world. And so when I first finished university, our initial thought was, oh, maybe we'll, we'll serve for a couple of years. Um, at the time, we even thought about serving in Europe, just anywhere where there, there was an opportunity to help others. Uh, we ended up working with the Salvation Army, and we were there for maybe six years mm. and had an incredible time. Yeah. Uh, throughout that time, Salvation Army is a bit it's like halfway between a, a charity and, and a church where they're doing uh, social action work within communities. And then they're also there's kind of a church gathering. So we pastored a church on the West Coast of Canada for a number of years with the Salvation Army. And there was all sorts of kind of community strategies from community gardens to uh, toy lending libraries, a, a discipleship house, just whatever worked. Um, and then the next step for us was we decided to move overseas. So we moved to Kuwait. Uh, mm. And initially, again, you know, just as teachers, right? We just moved there as teachers. But as a Christian, as someone who cares about this stuff, after a while, you know, you're, you're volunteering in a local church. You're doing what all of us would be doing. And then uh, the pastor who had been leading the church suddenly was like, yo, my visa's uh, expired. I got to leave. And two weeks later, he was out of the country. And so he's like, hey, I need you to take over and be pastor of this church from now on. Goodness. So then I end up pastoring that church. Um, and, and again, I, I think to myself, it, I, you don't need to move to Kuwait or to Uganda or to Kenya to be in missions. I think wherever you show up, it doesn't really matter where you live. Just wherever you are, you're meant to actually be a part of a transforming influence in the world, in your community, in your city. Mm -hmm. So wherever my wife and I have lived, that has been the plan. And so here we are back in Canada and again, trying to invest in, in planting a local church while also um, really staying connected globally through Bethany Kids. What what led you to Kuwait? I'm curious. Like, why, why did you guys, like, how did you guys decide upon Kuwait? Seems like kind of a random um, yeah. place. Yeah. And honestly, yes, just a, a random series of events. There were some beautiful people we knew there who had worked there as teachers and had a really meaningful time there. We'd actually visited there once on our way to India and just visited with some friends there for a couple of days and thought, this is incredibly different from anything that we're familiar with, hmm. but somehow feels 
incredibly beautiful in a place we'd like to call home for a while. And so, you know, when I, there, there's always the push and pull factors. I think we knew that our time um, with the Salvation Army was sort of coming to an end. We felt like, okay, this, we have done some amazing things here. We've really enjoyed the experience, but we feel like maybe it's time for something new. Um, so we were looking around and that opportunity sort of presented itself. And it, it's amazing because, you know, that if we had been offered a, a chance to work in Vietnam or, or elsewhere, yeah. we might've taken that and that could have set yeah. our, our paths on a whole new trajectory, but we, we took that opportunity and yeah, just incredible, really beautiful time. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, just living in a different country, I can imagine, or just somewhere like the Middle East and doing that kind of work, I can imagine just kind of changes your perspective on, on the world. Um, yeah. So I want I want curious, just because you have some experience living out in the Middle East, um, what's your take on what's going on in Afghanistan right now? Yeah. So good question. I mean, I should admit, I, I mean, I lived in the Arabian Gulf, which culturally is quite distinct from Afghanistan, which is almost more like Central Asia uh, in terms of culture. And of course, it's not Arabic speaking. So there's quite a few big cultural gaps yeah. between it. Um, but I would say that, you know, as always, Christians should be very concerned anytime other people in the world are suffering. Um, sure. in, in whatever way we can, we should see we should always be asking the questions of ourselves. Like, is there something we can do? Is there a way that we can help others? Is there something we can do to alleviate poverty? And, uh, and it's very much a humanitarian crisis what's happening there. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting what, what catches the attention of, of Westerners because, you know, mm -hmm. Yemen as another Middle Eastern state has been in a, play, in a state of absolute chaos and humanitarian disaster for years, yeah. but no one really seems to care. Afghanistan is very much in our, our kind of consciousness in North America, because a big part of it, it's our fault. Like as North mm. Americans, we mm. funded, not only yes. did we fund the, the Taliban in order to, to chase out the Soviets years ago, and then things went awry. And then we, we went there for whatever reason. Uh, it just, a lot of outside decisions were made. And so sometimes you think, well, it's not my responsibility. And to one degree, right, someone else's government is not necessarily a responsibility, except in this case, a huge yeah. part of the, the story, the modern experience of Afghani people is directly connected to, um, in this case, specifically U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. And so um, while the church need not dictate national policy from mm -hmm. anyone, we should be a force for love and for good and for justice and so when we hear, when you see the footage of people trying to cram into airplanes, when you see that, it should grieve us. It should cause us to mourn and say, like, what have we done? Right. Yeah. Regardless of whose fault it is, regardless of what has happened, it should leave us with an attitude of um, just really, we should be moved. We should be upset. We shouldn't be happy. We shouldn't be um, we shouldn't be pointing fingers either. We should be saying, so what what can we do now? as the church globally, bigger than any one nation on earth, the church globally is this massive movement of people that should be able to sort of uh, move resources to make things possible to help others. So uh, I think there are some organizations that are doing their best to, to try to 
make the world a better place. And, and that's what I would say is probably true and hopefully true for any place on earth that from Afghanistan to Yemen to Sierra Leone to uh, Mali, like wherever there are people suffering, the church should care and we should yeah. be doing something to, to make people's lives better. Yeah, I 100% agree there. Um, how, how close were you to those kind of issues when you were out living in the Middle East? So I know you probably saw a lot of things firsthand. That's obviously very yeah, different so, from the West. Yeah. Right. The Gulf is interesting. The Gulf is extremely wealthy as a, as a mm. like little um, group of countries. So Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain, uh, United Arab Emirates, those uh, Kuwait uh, are very, uh, a very wealthy stretch of, of countries. And what makes some of the things that make them interesting would be that no, like the, in almost every one of the countries with, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, the national population is the minority in the country. Mm. So Kuwait's and Qatar, some of these places, one third of the country are passport holding citizens. The other two thirds are migrant workers like myself, who are just there yeah. for a couple of years. So, so that makes them quite interesting. Why, uh, why is that? Why is that the makeup? I think when people have a lot of money, they find themselves not wanting to do jobs that um, that are difficult. Sure. So they they import a lot of labor, everything from street cleaning to maids around the house to teachers like myself, to engineers, to college professors, just a huge imported labor force. The difference between, say, uh, the Gulf and North America, for example, is is when you talk about immigration to the U.S., that often ends in a passport. So mm. someone can move, uh, even myself as a Canadian, or say I'm coming from East Asia, West Asia, Central Asia, wherever I'm coming from, I could move to the U.S. And within a couple of years, if I file the right paperwork, I could become a citizen and I would have a passport and I would have every other right that any other citizen has. Yeah. And my kids, you, you know, would, would also be born into that. I could live in the Gulf for 50 years and, and be a grandparent of children born in the Gulf. Those children would never have citizenship in the Gulf. Mm. Um, it is strictly, if your father is of that nationality, you get a passport. So that, Interesting. that is kind of a political or geopolitical reality of those states. Mm -hmm. And then, um, of course, they're all extremely religious. So conservatively quite religious, that means there's, there's tends to be either written or unwritten dress codes around quote unquote modesty. Um, so all of those things kind of define aspects of the Gulf. And the Gulf is quite distinct from say Iraq uh, or Lebanon or even as far as Afghanistan because poverty is, is measured quite differently. Mm -hmm. So there's a geographic proximity, but it's not, there's still kind of a world's way. So while yeah. we were in Kuwait, I traveled to Iraq twice and one just before ISIS started taking over. Um, mm. And then once after ISIS had a pretty strong foothold in Northern Iraq. Um, so I was able to travel to some of these places that did have uh, some distinct challenges that they were facing, but again, kind of worlds away from, from the borders of some of those wealthier States. So they share of course, they share religion, they share some cultural attributes, but the borders are not porous. There's there's kind of, you don't have huge, there are almost no refugees would be in the Gulf states from sure. places like Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq. So what is it like doing mission work out in those countries? Because um, I imagine that maybe the reception to Christian work out in, out in an area where um, I'm guessing 
the majority of the religious makeup is not Christian. Is that right? Is it mostly? That's right. Mostly. Yeah. And, and if I could sort of for context, there are many places in the world where uh, religious conversion is illegal and punishable by mm. law. Sure. So, so I, uh, I, I imagine that the Middle East is comprised of a lot of those countries. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Most of the places on earth that would punish you for changing religions would be in the Middle East and okay. Kuwait would be one of them. So yeah. I would say that rather than framing it in the context of sort of missions as, as, a, as separate from what I would do in Canada, uh, mm-hmm. I just, you, you live your life wherever you live. And hopefully the way you live your life um, becomes a sort of a beacon of light of a, of a different way of living to all those around you. Um, and in Kuwait, proselytizing or the, anything that, that could be defined as that would be illegal and would land you in jail very quickly. Mm. So rather than, you know, kind of traditional forms of evangelism, you, you just live your life in hopefully a way that is centered on Jesus and hopefully that, that people take notice of that. So, so when you're, when you have a Christian church then in, in a place like Kuwait, um, like how, how does that work? Uh, like, are, are you not yeah. under constant pressure and, and fear of persecution? Yes. <laughs> I imagine. Short answer. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so what, what was that experience like in trying to evangelize and, and do mission work in a church in Kuwait where again, you can be persecuted, um, by law for, for doing that kind of work? Right. I think, again, you know, there's very clear that we would be making sure that however you define evangelism or proselytization, that sort of thing, you, yeah. you need to stay away from those overt, overt forms of uh, trying to intellectually convince people of a certain way of life. Hmm. To be honest, though, I think we could probably do away with some of those models in North America as well. And instead, <laughs> you know, I think if we have communities that are truly loving and grace filled communities, um, and, and they're really life-giving to people, um, as churches should be right in every city in North America, we have churches that should be a sanctuary of, of sort of beauty and love Mm -hmm. and grace and mercy. I think when you try to establish communities like that, and you try to actually practice what we preach, um, then we, we don't have to do as much talking. Um, you can Mm -hmm. just kind of hopefully live in such a way that people notice, um, and, and transformation happens. And again, a place like Kuwait, I would say that for the most part, um, the, the government doesn't care too much what foreigners are doing when foreigners are hanging out with foreigners. Um, <laughs> and, and when two thirds of the country are foreigners, that's a lot of foreigners to think right. about Yeah, uh, where you would be in a real pickle in any of those states is if it was perceived that you were intentionally hanging out and trying to sort of convert um, local people. Um, I think those people would have a much, you know, if, if a church really cared about trying to um, share Jesus stories with communities around the world, I think uh, you, you needn't get on a plane and go for a missions trip someplace. A place like United States has so many foreign exchange students, has so many um, opportunities to, to spend time, time with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an incredible advantage and would save mission budgets a lot of money. Yeah. Um, to go, you know, um, I think of how many, how many foreign exchange students, you know, they're looking to have a meal with someone. They're looking to learn the language in North America. They're looking to have a place to do the laundry so they don't have to go to the laundromat. Like there's so many opportunities and there's no rules in a place like North America. So if someone really cares about missions to sort of Middle Eastern people, I would say 
save save your flight tickets and, and go to <laughs> go to any major university in, in the U.S. and yeah. um, and and camp out there. I think it's interesting what your answer was there because when I when I feel like when we talk about missions in at least the U.S., you talk about going overseas and you're usually there for like what like a week, maybe a month at most, and you're there solely to just really go hard on on evangelizing, spreading the good news, and then you leave. Whereas it seems like your approach, at least in your personal life, is like go there and live out the gospel and hope that um, I guess that act in a way is like you through your actions planting the seed and hope that God kind of does the rest. Whereas I think the more uh, Western way to look at it is like go there and really try to be the ones like shoving it down their throats and then hope that hope that that inspires some kind of change in the community. So uh, I just think that that's an interesting answer that you gave there. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that kind of goes into my next question about understanding, like what goes into the heart of being like a missionary and being doing missions work? Cause mm-hmm. again, it, it does seem like at least the way that I've traditionally thought about missions work is if you live in the U S you leave your country to go to a poorer country um, often kind of like with the savior complex mentality of like, mm-hmm. okay, like we are better than these people. We're richer. Uh, these people are like lost and we need to go s- spread the gospel to them and we're going to go save them. And then we're going to come back. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that that was, uh, it's an interesting way to think about it. Cause I don't think, you know, first of all, I don't think we should view people like that, you know, like, Oh, like we just need to go save them and then come back. Um, so I, I w- I'm curious to hear your take on like, what, what do you think goes into having the right heart to do missions work and be a missionary and um, really not, not be so aggressive in your approach of like, okay, I'm going to go into this country, shove it down their throat, come back and then come home and feel good about myself. Yeah. You know? I think you've raised <laughs> a lot of important things because I think there's issues of racism in there. There's issues of mm. um, sort of colonialism that like, there's just a lot of layers that have kind of tainted. Absolutely um, sharing the gospel and made it even harder in 2021 than it was years ago because of the the mess that we've made. So what I would say is that I think it's important that we stop making a distinction between the word Christian and the word missionary, because they're Mm. the same. Uh, Mm. if you, if you say you're a Christian, that means you're following in the teachings of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And following in the teachings of Jesus implies that you're actually living differently and loving your neighbor, uh, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Like there's a whole Mm. uh, list of things that happen if you choose Mm. to follow Jesus. And Jesus sort of, I think of conversations like Jesus looking at his disciples, like, oh, you say you love me. Great. So then go feed my sheep. Mm. Every Christian is a missionary like that, that those words are synonymous. They're people who follow Jesus. The, the church should be seen as a the, the called out people, people who are called out of this world and with a specific function or mission or mandate. So again, I would say all Christians are missionaries yep. um, and, and should be, should behave mm. as such. Uh, and I think I would, I think we need to stop seeing geography as the kind of key definitive factor of, of what, how we see missions. Mm. That is, I don't think it particularly matters where you live. Um, you know, there are people in your neighborhood, there are people in my neighborhood who, who need to have this transformative experience of love. Now, absolutely, there are countries in this world that could, that could use a little bit of extra assistance. That's why organizations like Bethany Kids exist, 
But you notice that the vast majority of even these missionary surgeons are all people in their home countries. So yeah. again, in Madagascar, who better qualified to serve in Madagascar for us than someone from Madagascar? There's no foreigner in Madagascar working with Bethany kids. The same is true in Sierra Leone, Zambia, Uganda, Cameroon, Ethiopia, like that. Our model is to hopefully empower and inspire local people to really carry this on in ways that as a foreigner, I wouldn't be able to do. Uh, there's language, there's culture, there's all sorts of other issues that are going to be complicated. So again, all Christians are missionaries. I don't know how much geography really matters because, you know, again, in the context of the United States, you have people from all around the world showing up uh, into the United States. So if your passion is to see uh, people from around the world have a transformative experience with Jesus, then, then help those people who show up at your borders um, because there's your opportunity. You didn't even have to get on a plane. So your mm -hmm. costs are really limited. And maybe you're going to have, maybe, maybe you're in the South of the United States and you meet someone from El Salvador and you have an incredible experience. And maybe eventually that person goes back to El Salvador, support that person as they go back yeah. and help them have the financial resources to be a missionary in their hometown because they are the most qualified to serve in their home country. Um, so I think there's, there's ways we can do it that are less um, condescending, um, ways that are less kind of rooted in our racist and colonial uh, past. Um, I, I think the, the big thing is to see that all of us have this mission to, to love God and to love others. Um, so regardless of where you are on the planet, that's the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Your call, my call, we're in different countries. It's the same thing. You know, we've got a, a hurting world and we're called to love them. So wherever you are, we got to get to that. And it doesn't have to cost a lot of money and it doesn't have to require a plane ticket. Sometimes those things can be helpful. Again, I, I think of Bethany Kids as an example of an organization that started with a couple of foreigners doing amazing work. Mm -hmm. But very quickly, way before I ever showed up, they made the decision to, to shift their focus to be empowering and inspiring local people uh, and I think any organization doing that kind of work, that is really where we've got to be, because then it's no longer Canada and the U.S. are the kind of the church senders and the rest of the world are receivers. But this realization that the church is global and you and I are part of the same church that my colleagues in Kenya or Uganda are part of. And none of us, there's no hierarchy of, um, you know, who's closest to Jesus or something. There's just like we are one kingdom that transcends borders. When I thought, think about missions, um, you know, I've always been someone who believes that, like you said, you have to be able to help locally before you help, you know, beyond your, the borders of where you live. Because like here in Austin, Texas, you know, homeless, homelessness here is like, it's a really big problem. Mm. And I feel like you don't really hear Christians talking about, oh, I did missions in downtown Austin, you know, mm. evangelizing and helping the poor, like helping the homeless and the poor. But I think there is something, there's some kind of like glamour associated with like Western Christians when they say like, you know, you're from Texas and you're like, oh yeah, I went over to like, you know, mm. Africa and I did a mission trip for a whole summer and it changed my life. And it's like, yeah, maybe it yeah. did change your life, you know, but I think there's so much like selfish intention that goes into saying something like that and be involved in something like that. And also like every time, at least in my experience in church, like a mission opportunity comes up, it costs like $4,000. And then as like, as like someone in youth group, your parents not going to pay for that, you know? Yeah. And the, the thing I would add is like, I clearly like going overseas. I like traveling around the world. Yeah. Uh, I've been to a lot of places, 
And those were not, you know, missions trips per se. That's just me going around the world traveling. Um, and, and I think if you have the opportunity to travel, by all means, do that. But we need to disassociate international travel, which some of us love, from mission. Mm-hmm. Because international travel is optional for the church. Yeah. Um, mission is not. Mm-hmm. Mission is definitive. It's central to who we are, to our identity. You mm-hmm. don't have to get on a plane to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. Travel, international travel, that's a perk. That's a privilege. If you have that opportunity and you can use it, by all means, do that. But but don't for a second think that that is missions. And as yeah. you said, helping long term. And I don't just mean two weeks showing up with a couple you know bags of sandwiches, but long term <laughs> investing in communities like yeah. Austin that might be facing challenges. Um, Absolutely. Like show up as the church. Like churches need to be showing up everywhere. We don't need to always think about a flight to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you th- you think of that um, the the missions trip in in church youth group you talked about. $4,000, $4,000, how many surgeries could I have uh, performed? Um, and, and that would be immediately helping instead of saying, now we've got a busload of kids from Texas who are going to go paint a school in um, yeah. Ecuador or something. Yeah. Um, I would, I think if there are places where that might be the right choice, but I think the vast majority of times, you know, I think if there's already good things happening on the ground, they don't actually need me to show up. Uh, if I want to contribute rather than paying $4,000 to get on a flight, maybe I could give that $4,000 to an organization like Bethany kids mm-hmm. who is, who is training local missionaries who serve in their home countries and who are doing the, the medical work of, of the country. Yeah. I, I often think that at least, you know, and this is me speaking personally as well. Sometimes, um, when it comes to like giving offering or donating to organizations, sometimes it's hard to really give yourself like that because when you're, when you feel very like far away from the mission of a certain organization, um, oftentimes I found in the West, like we're so, we're so like weary about where our money goes and we want to see exactly how far each dollar that we give is stretched out that, you know, going out and donating a hundred dollars a month, uh, all of a sudden it seems like it's such a big deal, you know, yeah. but uh, in reality, you know, like organizations like Beth and kids, you can really understand the direct impact your dollar is having yeah. and it's making like a greater local um, impact. And I just think that, that, that way of thinking has been, uh, it's been distorted. Like you, like you mentioned earlier, I think it's largely a part of like a mess that the church has created um, just with dishonesty and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just different controversies that surround the work that the church does. Uh, but regardless, I think uh, we're living in some, I think we're living in some dark times and especially in the U S and I think the local mission work um, it, it should be a point of emphasis for, for all American churches rather than focusing too much on international affairs. I mean, not to say that international affairs aren't important, but yeah. I think we have a lot of work to do at home as well. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you always want to make sure you're, you're, you're engaged in on a number of fronts. Hmm. And it's interesting as you were talking about that sort of someone is almost more likely to get on a $4,000 mission trip flight than give a hundred dollars a month to a charity. Uh, part of that is about control. And there's a human nature yeah. thing there where I'm like, uh, I, I can control it. And you're thinking, so yeah, you can control how that 4,000 is spent, but think about it. You gave some to the airline, you gave some to the hotels, you're, you're giving away half the money and you got there and your main 
accomplishment as you painted some schoolroom. I mean, that's great. And you, you were, you could see the whole thing, but if you truly measure your return on investment, was that can of paint and your free labor worth $4,000? Because if you, you, and sometimes we've, we've had more scrutiny for organizations who, who are providing care, you know, Bethany kids or, or any other organization. We're like, I want to see every penny of that. And you're like, Absolutely. That's fair. And it's yeah. good transparency, but we don't have the same scrutiny when we get on that missions trip flight for two weeks to say, I just blew through $4,000 in two weeks. Um, but I was there. So I feel accountable. And you're like, no, that that's right. still very poor accountability financially. If, if my measure is return on investment, that's a terrible decision. <laughs> if my measure is how much fun did I have and how yeah. good did I feel, then maybe it feels like a great decision. So it, it raises questions of like, when we give to organizations, what is what exactly is our purpose in giving? What's our return on investment we're hoping for? Is it that the world is made better, that the, the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed? Or is it that we feel a sense of, I feel good, I feel amazing, you know? Because I think a lot of people, they give so that they feel great. Um, and, and that's a very different reason for giving. And I think as a church, we should be giving uh, for far different reasons. I, yeah, it's uh, a lot of virtue signaling that happens, especially in the <laughs> yeah. world of social media. But <laughs> yes, I, I I find it quite easy for, you know, again, we said that earlier, people will very quickly share our stuff and be like, oh, this is important, so important, you should care. And I'm like, so should you like, you know, thanks for sharing our stuff. <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, do something. <laughs> yeah, that I yeah. like some you know, if you kind of think of generationally, uh, and our generation has a tendency to really critique older people in the church and like how much we know everything is, we're so much better, we're, we're so much smarter or something, but like older people who no one knows that they're putting checks in the bank every month for places like Bethany Kids, senior citizens who are like 50 bucks a month, $100 a month, or, and no one's clapping for them or publishing it on social media. And then you'll have so, someone on social media that'll donate like $20 and there'll be a whole post about how great they are. And you're like, Yo, you, you know, there's a yeah. different way to do it. <laughs> yeah. And as much as we critique the older generation, they have modeled this, humil- this humility and this generosity in ways that I think we have a lot to learn from them. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, always, I always rock with the old school way of doing things. Because like, <laughs> like I said, the, the, I think the world of social media is great where it's like, uh, I think there are some positives to sharing. Like if I were to donate, maybe that can inspire someone else who, who sees it and they're like, oh, wow. Whether it's for selfish reasons or not, you know, I, I kind of take the Paul approach of like, you know, whether the gospel is shared in, in the wrong ways or the right ways, we just have to gl- rejoice that it's being shared anyways. You know, I try yeah. to view it that way. Uh, yeah. But I got to say, it's it's kind of annoying to see sometimes. <laughs> it's like, you can, why can't you just give and just, yeah. Just let it be that. Right. And then just, yeah, just give, you don't need yeah. a, yeah, absolutely. There there's again, every generation we, we, there's great things that we as younger people bring to the church and to the table. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we give the older generation a hard time on a lot of things and we probably still have a lot to learn from them in terms of their consistency with generosity and humility. You have, Again, I think of these older people that they've maybe never left to go on some mission trip. They've never left the continent, but they give money to, to a missionary organization on the opposite side of the planet because they care about the gospel. Um, and, and no one knows. They just sit there quietly doing it. That's, we could learn from that.
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like you were, you've been mentioning throughout it's, it's how you live out the actions of the gospel to, to hope to yeah. inspire. And also um, one of my favorite passages is when Jesus talks about prayer um, and he says, don't be like the Pharisees who go out and like they, they'd be in their chest and out in front of everyone mm. trying to get attention. But when you pray, go do it in secret because the rewards that you get for doing that in secret will be much more than yeah. you can imagine. Um, but perhaps that's a, that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> I, I think it, it does raise like an important thing in this sort of consistency, because if, if I go around and, and shout things from the rooftop about you should believe in Jesus or you're going to hell or, or however I want to phrase it, um, you know, maybe people will ignore me, but also maybe people will notice me and they're now going to look at my life. And suddenly uh, the, the microscope is there and they're going to be looking to make sure that my life is consistent with the words that I've been speaking. Mm. Um, I think it is a far more impactful approach to ensure that our life is consistent with the teachings of Jesus, because that yes. alone shakes things up. You start yeah. wandering around being uh, less, less self-centered, being generous, loving your enemies you start loving your enemies, the world is going to take notice. It does not take long for that to be, that is so countercultural. That is not the ways of this world to love mm. others the way that Jesus calls us to. You live like that, you're, you are going to get an invitation to share your story. Mm. Uh, and it would be with the exact opposite of me trying to shove information into someone's face who doesn't want to hear it. You live in a way that's consistent with the gospel. People will ask you why. People will invite you to share uh, yes. I think that's the approach we've got to be taking regardless of, of what continent we're working on. So before we go into some closing remarks, uh, I, I'm curious to ask, what are the biggest challenges that you faced just in, in living overseas and, and doing mission work and I guess really expanding your comfort zone and, you know, and dedicating your life to these kind of causes? What are some, what are some of the biggest challenges that, that you've gone through? Um. Yeah, I would say that I, I can't think of major challenges, but um, historically, I could think of some right now, but historically, I just think that each opportunity that's presented to you, there's certainly something to learn and some some kind of layers to be shed, layers of fear mm. or anxiety or whatever it is uh, of our nature that needs to be worked on. Um, so I would say regardless of where I've worked or lived, each experience has, has hopefully informed me and challenged me and made me a better version of myself. Um, and, and I think that's probably true for most people in terms of challenges right now, I would say, and it's this thing that we've been picking up on a few times is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to raise money for cause that exists on the opposite side of the planet in, in a, in a nation or a group of nations here in North America that cares a lot about image cares a lot about themselves and how to, and you, you never, there's no value in me coming across as like self-righteous like oh my cause is bigger than your cause and you should help otherwise you're a terrible person like that's not going to help but i i do find the sort of individualism and narcissism of north america is, is tough to, to to try to share stories of like hey you should give your money so that some kid you'll never meet can walk again and it's like well is that that doesn't look good on my social media you know like it just <laughs> i find that's a challenge raising money in, in a pandemic is not easy because there are some, a lot of people who've lost work, who, who don't have a source of income, who would love to contribute to a cause like this, but they don't have the ability to right now. So just finding ways to navigate this new world of fundraising in yes. an era that is, is more and more complex. The people who have money don't want to share it. 
the people who don't have money wish they could. And the people who have money think they don't have enough money to share, right? <laughs> They're like, oh, I only have a $300,000 job or I only have $60,000 a year in, in salary. And you're like, you know, 50 bucks a month, $100 yeah. a month, like you were saving lives. Uh, but most people seem to think uh, it's not for them or, or someone else will do it for them. Uh, you know, if, yeah, someone else will do it. Some, some rich person will come in and save the day. And you're like, no, it's individuals. When we gather together as the global church where real change happens. So that, that is the, the biggest challenge for me today in missions mm. is really raising that awareness and funding for projects that matter. Mm. And I feel like you're preaching to me directly on that. You know, people who with no money wish they could give people who have it, don't think they have. Um, and I think you described, I think just, uh, human nature and also just the Western Christian mentality or maybe just the Western mentality in general. Yeah. So before we close here, I always like to ask our guests to just, um, drop some closing remarks on just anything that you feel like sharing. Um, yeah, just any, any closing remarks that you might have. Yeah. I, first of all, let me just say thank you to you and to anyone who's made it this far in the podcast, because we can fill, <laughs> we can fill our heads with a lot of stuff every day. Um, and we can cruise through Netflix shows so quickly. So thank you yes. to you and to anyone who's paying attention, uh, because you're already kind of setting yourself up in a way that's, you know, you're, you're open to changing your perspective, you're listening, you're eager to learn. So thank you. Um, I would say that even before I started working for Bethany kids, I saw it as an incredible organization. It's this small, unique little charity that has a pretty small footprint in the world. But every year, thousands of surgeries are being done. Every year, we're training local missionaries who live in their home countries, who are transforming their communities. Absolutely incredible. And so if you, anyone who's listening, can help, like, honestly, it would fill us with joy. You, you know, again, I think like the, the high-fiving in that Instagram video I saw that when, when someone gives to this cause, we're still just so grateful, so appreciative. And it just, it, yeah, we're just very excited about it. So if you can help whoever's listening, um, know that we need it. Uh, there are big mm. projects that we have that will literally transform lives and they can only happen if we have people coming to the table in countries who have money, who are willing to share. Love that. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. Again, this was uh, Peter Lublink. Uh, the executive director of Bethany Kids. Thank you so much for your time, Peter. My pleasure. Thank you all for tuning in for another episode of Sound of Water podcast, and we will catch you next time. Peace.